Made for autistic people, parents and carers of kids on the autism spectrum. This is a different brilliant with Orion Kelly. No two autistic people are the same. Open conversations that inform and engage a better place for autistic An Aspect people. podcast focusing on the strengths, interests and aspirations of the autistic community. Welcome to a different brilliant. Thank you so much for listening to A Different Brilliant. I'm your host, Orion Kelly, and I'm autistic. Now, my purpose is to inspire, inform, and entertain you through focusing on the strengths, interests, and aspirations of the autistic community. On this episode, we explore the topic of autism and the LGBTIQA community. My guest is Ruby Mountford. Ruby is a writer, public speaker, radio host, and member of Aspects LGBTIQA Plus Advisory Committee. Ruby, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Now, for the purpose of the conversation, so I want to get this right, Ruby, I use he, him pronouns. That's what I use. And Ruby, you use they, them pronouns, correct? That's right. You are (laughs) an unbelievably hardworking advocate for the LGBTIQA plus community. I mean, it's un- it's ridiculous, your list. Anyway, you, you really, I clearly can't fit it all into the introduction, and that's okay because we're here to talk about something really important. But just, just quickly for the people listening, you, did you want to share with us your connection to the, to the community and, and how you identify? We've obviously talked about the pronouns, but just give us yeah, a bit sure. of an insight into you. With the first thing saying I'm a part of the Melbourne Bisexual Network. So that's that one out of the way. I'm a bisexual person. I'm also uh, the co-host of a community radio show called Triple Bypass on Joy 94.9, which is Australia's LGBTIQ community station. and one of the only three 24-hour LGBTIQ radio stations in the world. And I'm also part of Aspects LGBTIQ A Plus Advisory Committee, which I've been part of since 2017. Yeah, this is why I said I can't fit it all into the <laughs> Okay. We both mentioned how we mm-hmm. identify with pronouns. So for those that don't yeah. have a good understanding of the use of pronouns, mm. and I am absolutely one of those people, I want to talk about the use of pronouns within the LGBTIQA plus community. And I know, I know you said from an in- inclusive point of view, really, everyone could just do it. And that's, I, I get that. Yeah. That's cool. But let's just start at the start. Could you just talk us through mm. the importance of the pronouns and also what they actually mean to you or to the yeah. people that use them? Well, I think it's interesting, isn't it? Because we all know how to use pronouns. Like we use them all the time. Like when we're referring to other people, when we're talking about somebody I just think it's something that isn't really thought about until there is a chance for people to get yours wrong and to assume, because pronouns are also how we gender people, right? So yeah. he said this, she said this, they said this, Zia said this, but I think he and she are the ones that people use most. I think, again, people have used non-gendered pronouns often without really thinking about it in a singular way of just being like, I was behind someone in the line for post office. They were they were taking their sweet ass time, you know, like yeah. uh, without really thinking about it. Yeah. But I think it, it's becoming more of a, an idea now because gender is often one of the first things we really clock in somebody. And instinctively, when we clock someone's gender, we think, well, these are the pronouns I'll use to refer to this person. We don't think about that. It just kind of happens pretty naturally. That's what we do. And I think the issue is when folks who are gender non-conforming, who are transgender, who are non-binary, often 
our pronouns are really important because gender is something that we've had to work very hard on embracing and sharing because it's a different gender than the one that we were assigned at birth. So the standard practices, you know, when kids are born, people have a look between their legs and say, it's a boy, it's a girl. Often, and if people are intersex, there might actually be more discussion than that. And that's a whole other issue, which I don't have the experience to speak on. Just to be clear, people with uh, intersex variation, people who are born with sex characteristics that fall outside of what we generally define as male and female, or can be like variations of those. But anyway, that's what, that's the I in LGBTIQA+, by the way, everyone. I is for intersex. The pronouns are really important, I think, because for trans people, gender is something that our gender, the gender that we identify with, is something that is often debated or ignored or erased. So people want to know what you were born as. And so as someone who's non-binary and so has a gender identity that is very new to a lot of the Western English-speaking world, it's something that has to be constantly reminded of. And so for me, I know that people will often look at me and reach for the pronoun that they think and they've been socialized to apply to me. And they're going to be wrong. So it's always important for me to say what my pronouns are. But I think the other thing is that for people who maybe haven't thought about gender, who are very happy identifying as a gender that they were assigned at birth, that's a cisgender person, you don't think about pronouns because you're very confident people will get it right for you. I imagine if someone accidentally misgendered you, you would correct them. If someone said, I met a Ryan, she's great, you'd be like, oh, no, I'm a guy. I don't use she. And exactly the same for us, just we tend to have to do it a lot more often. And so it, often it can be a sign of kind of, it's a way of signaling, I know not to assume by yeah. introducing yourself with your pronoun, because it says, I think, and again, if you don't think about it, it's because you assume people will know from looking at you and that you won't have to worry about that. Yeah. And then that's my understanding of how pronouns work and why they matter to me. I don't choose to call myself autistic. That's that's who I am. I, I get what you're yeah, saying. Yeah, okay. Yeah. All right. Now, there's there's a growing uh, amount of research that's focusing, zeroing in on autistic mm. people and the likelihood of identifying with the LGBTIQA plus community. Now, I want to unpack. Yeah. I want to unpack this, but bit by bit. Okay. So, I want to start mm. by breaking down the ways that autistic people may identify with the community. And when I mean the ways, mm. I mean given that autistic people are part of a minority and we experience mm-hmm. uh, dual identities, discrimination, misconceptions, mm-hmm. and isolation caused by a lack of understanding mm-hmm. and societal barriers. I'm assuming there's multiple layers. For example, I can identify with you but I hmm. don't identify as a person within your community, but I identify with, with what they go through. Does that oh, make sense? It does, but I suppose that sense of you are in my community. We're both autistic people. You know, so exactly. it's that I have multiple communities. I'm very bisexual that way. Um, it's, a, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think why it is that that's happening and what the research is going into is interesting because, we've, you know, I think I studied in the UK found recently that trans people are three to six times as likely to be autistic than cisgender people, which is a it's a pretty significant number. And even within when it comes to identifying as something other than heterosexual and cisgendered, it's something like between 30 and 50 percent of the autistic community. And given in the in what we call like the, the non-autistic community, and that it's about 10 percent is the estimate. So it's hard to know because we don't get any good data because asking about sexuality and gender identity in the census has been deemed as a bit too political. But I digress. I have strong outrage feelings, as many autistic people can relate to. It's a, I think it's that sense of why this is happening and whether it's because we are, we interpret or deal with social cues differently 
And like, you know, there's a lot of theories around the socialization of gender and the socialization of heteronormativity, this idea that everyone is heterosexual until proven otherwise, and that's the default correct way of being. And I suppose my my concern around the research is just how it's being done, of course. Like, you know, the artistic community, we've got a bit of a history of people researching us without really asking us any questions about it. And as a result of that, so much understandings or medical writings about autistic people is very much just based on the behaviours they observe in us that are different to what they decide is normal. It's very different to, you know, understanding our experiences. Like, you know, everyone focuses on repetitive behaviours and social issues as opposed to like sensory overload, which is one of the biggest debilitating things about being autistic, at least. And I guess it's that sense of my concern can be that often because of the also history of treating autistic people like children, there's this idea of talking about sexuality and gender with us is wrong in some way or that like, you know, we're not mature enough or adult enough to really be safe to talk about sexuality and gender with or to be able to talk about it without being open, like, you know, without being considered too vulnerable. And I think that's really frustrating because this discourse often means that we, before we can even start talking about it, have to remind people that we are very capable of knowing ourselves, <laughs> you know? Absolutely. Uh, we are, and I think so. Um, the discussion around that, I think, is difficult because it's happening quite quickly, I think. I think the autism service organisations, which, you know, historically and still today aren't necessarily run by autistic people or have a large autistic like a workforce are really just suddenly being aware of this this huge area where they've got a massive lack of knowledge just because it has been such a taboo topic historically and socially. So I think it, there's a whole lot of complicated factors. It's also the fact that sexuality of any kind other than heterosexual has been deemed as a mature topic and unsuitable for children for a very long time, which inherently just means that you know, we're happy to watch Disney films with the prince and the princess kissing, but anything to do with same gender people is an M rating or above, you know, like it's, um, and so that again, set this idea that when we're talking about sexuality, we're just talking about sex and we shouldn't talk about sex with autistic people. And also when it comes to gender, like, you know, the huge issues with all the diagnostics being based on the behavior of white boys. And so people who are Women and people who were socialized as women identify differently now tend to get diagnosed way later because... Hmm. Oh, we'll get to gender. We'll get to gender, Ruby. Don't worry. We'll get to gender. (laughs) Don't you worry about that. I was a start... I just want to start at the start. That's all. Okay, so we've got our our base with regards to this idea in research that... Mm. Mm. That autistic people identify well to date the the relevant studies and as you talked about it's really they're really tricky but they they really vary widely from my reading on percentages and, yeah. and data yeah. of autistic people identifying as uh, with the LGBTIQA plus community. You know, roughly most of the data to just to, re- to really break it down in rough terms is two to three times higher than neurotypical people. But most experts I've noted have said that larger studies need to be done before there's a true yeah. rate known. So yeah. from, from your point of view, what's your overall understanding of, of the ongoing and the most, the most recent studies into this connection? Is it something that you value or find credible? I don't think the research into autistic people has reached a point of nuance and uh, human rights-focused, peer research-focused ethos to be for me to not just have dubious concerns about, or to me to think there's going to be like a, it's going to be dubious. It's just yeah. because I also think why people want to know is always so important and seems to be so rarely asked. It's like, why is it so important 
people to pin this down. Yeah. Um, you know, why is, it, like, why is it so important to try and, like, you know, find the medical reason when you can't even, like, what is it, people often, we don't have, like, people can't diagnose us from a blood test, you know? Like, it's not yeah. like we, we are easily defined as is and they want to kind of try and pin something down that's also extremely difficult to define and has something that for a long time people will socially be, like, encouraged to hide. Uh, yeah, so I suppose I think it's important on the other hand, we need the research to kind of show why there needs to be better supports. And so it's that weird sense where I would love to see research. And I know that there are a lot more autistic folk who are in research now, who are working in universities as researchers and academics who are able to guide that research uh, in a way that is, is, is really encouraging. But I, I guess it's that sense of have we really gotten to a point where we can safely say this research will be done ethically? I don't know. Yeah. I, I guess, as I said, I think we've got enough. I would hope that there is enough research now to pinpoint a significant enough part of the community that it does need a targeted approach and yeah. that it does require a that autistic service providers and people who, who you know, do autism diagnoses have, spent, have had to learn about it and understand it and be culturally safe. Uh, in providing services for LGBTIQA plus people. Yeah, and do you think, from what you're saying, I'm just this question has popped up. Do you think it's mm. possible that some research is almost using autism as a way of explaining why some people aren't heterosexual, and in a way of explaining that? Yeah, is that what yeah. you think? Is that what you're saying? No, I, I'm saying that that is one of a few conclusions. People people would approach the research to try and prove that not being a straight cis person is in some way proof of a disadvantage yeah. or in some way proof of something being wired wrong, which is how they still think of us. As in so your brain, your brain has that. to be wired differently kind of thing. We have to have Here's, a disability. I see, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and also I think as well, it's only been very recently that, like, you know, that they've taken being a trans person off the mental health register. And homosexuality was only removed from the World Health Organization's listings of mental illness in 1990. So, you know, it's only been very recently that being not straight and not cis has not been considered to be a mental illness already. And so I do get concerned about people's quickness to try and link gender and sexuality to what is still listed as a disability and the way that people who are already trying to find arguments against celebrating and including and understanding queer people will use this as a way to kind of further justify that you know yeah so of course yeah I've got a lot of I've got a lot of concerns because yeah but I also think it's process happening where a lot of queer spaces people are getting adult diagnoses or meeting a lot of autistic people and recognizing that they might be autistic themselves so there's already, and I think once that's reached a critical mass, then we can start talking about how we want research to be done properly. Yeah, I can't tell you how much I'm I'm enjoying this chat. It's fascinating, Ruby. It's, it, I'm, <laughs> I'm serious. It's fascinating. It's, it, I oh, find, I'm really enjoy, I'm really enjoying it. I'm sure people listening are enjoying it too. I want to talk about some studies that I've found that suggest that <laughs> autistic men, so like me, I mm. guess, are more likely. Mm than autistic women to be heterosexual. Now, obviously, if we take me yeah. as the one person in the study, well, then that, that's correct, right? But it doesn't mean it's true. But yeah. I'm, just, I'm just really interested because while autistic women were more likely to be attracted to both sexes, it also said they could be more likely to be attracted just, to, just, to, just, to neither sex. Yeah, I'm just going to jump in there and point out that, like, I think what you mean was attracted to more than one gender because there are more than two. 
And I'm purely going know, on just I the, the study, the, the pure study, the study results and how, yeah. they, how they worded it. It's not my, yeah. my, my no, kind of words. I guess what I'm saying is like already at that point, as I'm saying, like that's not an ideal question. But yeah. And this, is, know, the, this, is, this is my question. With the, with the known barriers and the higher rates yeah. of misdiagnosis for autistic women and girls, it's already causing yeah. significant harm to mental health and other facets mm-hmm. of their life. Mm-hmm. I wonder mm-hmm. how important it actually is to have – you know, autism service providers with a better understanding of LGBTIQ plus people and their identities, given mm. everything we've just talked about. Yeah, well, I, I think autistic providers are slowly catching up on autism in women and people who are socialised as women as well. Like that's eating disorders and like the prevalence of that in autistic women. There's a lot of new areas people are kind of waking up to, which is which is great, but just, you know, hurry it along a bit. We found that like even in the non-autistic population, women are more likely to identify as not solely heterosexual, whether that's bisexual, pansexual, lesbian, queer, and all the other kind of terms they use. So I think in that way it kind of matches. But I also do feel that with autistic men, there is that sense of much like in bisexuality in non-autistic men, which is a much, much lower rate of coming out. And from what I've understood from my autistic gay friends, it's just like there is a kind of, it is much harder because of the avenues into gay men's culture involves a lot of socialising. And so that can be very difficult for us. Of course. Look, I don't know. Homosexuality in men is often defined by femininity. And so I do think that autistic men maybe do want to focus more on masculine traits and really avoid anything that might be seen as taking away from their masculinity. But I don't actually know because there hasn't been a lot of research on why, like on how men feel about homosexuality in the autistic community and where. Like that would involve a lot more nuanced questions. Like how do you feel about gay people? If people could honestly just feel what they felt and be and not have shame attached to that or this societal understanding of this other's me or this this will lead to me being like condemned by a group of people, I think there's a lot of spaces in that where it's hard to really know how honest people, how much room people actually have to understand themselves and how much room men are given to understand themselves. And then even smaller again, how much room autistic men are given to really wonder about themselves and to feel comfortable in expressing things that might mark them as even further away from the Australia and like a lot of the world idea or what they give to us as their default person and what they decide is the default experience, which is often, you know, the experience of a white straight guy. Yeah, it's a very interesting thing you've brought up with regards to, as I talked about those studies where they talk about the male autistic people more likely to be heterosexual. And the the points you brought up are really interesting. They've definitely got me thinking. And it's tricky because, like you said, we need to have a big group of data and really look at it. I think that's probably going to be a ways away, isn't it? I mean, we're waiting on really an entire generation to be diagnosed. Exactly. And I think we're also waiting on an entire generation that that learns about different sexualities and genders from a much earlier age. You know, like I learned about non-binary gender identities roughly actually the same time I got diagnosed. 2015 was a big year for me, you know. Um, (laughs) But like I think, and it wasn't until I had the language and the people around me that like I could actually start to understand myself. And so I also think it's about access. Like how are people able to access information? What At what age are they introduced to the concepts? Because uh, as I said before, there's been this thing of keeping it away from children. And so all like any, the existence of not straight people was seen as an inherently adult thing that like that kids shouldn't really know about. And I think that kind of attitude can linger that sense of, well, I don't need to know that because like uh, it wasn't really part of my life. But I think for me, like learning and understanding gender and sexuality 
is something that's really nice for anyone to do because I think when you're kind of much like, you know, when we were diagnosed with autistic people, as we were talking about before we started recording and, you know, that kind of process of adult diagnosis of reflection and suddenly understanding things a lot more. I think very similar things can happen with gender and sexuality. We don't understand what's happening for us until we're kind of given a better rule book for it or someone gives us the how-to kit. And then it's just like, oh, this all makes so much sense now, of course. I think for a lot of people questioning gender and sexuality and actually thinking about, well, why do I feel like this? What does gender mean to me? I've never actually thought about it before. Like I just assumed, you know, same with sexuality. And so I think having the opportunity to kind of sit and be like, well, I'm a straight cis guy, but I still kind of want to know what that actually means. We don't have to think about it on our own terms often because there's so many scripting. There's so much scripts out there for us to look at if we need to understand something. So I think it can be nice, though, to still just, you know, close your eyes and be like, okay, I'm a guy. What does that feel like and why do I know that to be true in myself? Okay, I'm straight. What does that feel like and why do I know that to be true? It's something everyone should do. I think one of the things I really learned and what I'm grateful for is that when I was diagnosed as an autistic person, I had started to really form more of a community around being bisexual and I had a partner and I was starting at this radio show, which is the first time I'd really had a reason to actually think about what being bisexual meant. I'd known I was until I'd had a therapist tell me I wasn't and then I'd been very confused for a while, but I knew I was again. And so, but because I'd had to deal with that uncertainty and bisexuality is what those multi-gender attraction of any kind is really not well understood, I think, and is kind of, Gender is a very important thing for a lot of people when it comes to how they feel attraction. And so when you say gender actually isn't the most important thing for me, it kind of goes against a lot of what we're raised to believe is true. Like it's the main reason we separate genders, you know, as kids, because we don't want them like making out because you can't have a boy and a girl in a room together without tension or whatever. And so when you're saying, well, I have the potential to experience attraction to any person I meet of any gender, that I can also figure that out and not, but I have to know in myself and listen to myself and figure out what kind of attraction I feel to this person as opposed to falling back on the assumption that I'm talking to a guy. So I was raised as a girl. So we're flirting because it's a guy and it's a femme person. And that's what happens when they, when they talk. Because I'd had to work on in all that uncertainty when I was diagnosed as an autistic person, a lot of other things clicked. And then through that, I was meeting a lot of other autistic non-binary people. And because I was already thinking about what gender meant to me and how the role it played and how I interacted with others, you know, how I moved through the world and how attraction worked for me, then we start thinking about what gender actually meant to me and what felt, what I'd been doing because it was all I knew and what I was doing because it felt good. And what I like, and I think that was a really having the freedom to and the space and the support to do that. I feel really, really lucky. I know that's not something that everyone gets. I had space to really sit and think and decide for myself. And I think knowing I was autistic made that a lot easier in some ways because I was already like, well, I've already learned in my brief stint of oh, after being diagnosed that autistic people understand the autistic experience better than anybody else even if all the experts have been saying different things. So I should listen to myself and not listen to people who claim to speak for me. And yeah, so I guess I think that's something everyone should get to do. It makes total sense. And not a question, just a comment. I think with everything you've said, the kind of widespread um, misconception within the general community that autistic people uh, are not sexually active probably makes it even harder to have the right conversations. The last thing that I think we really should talk about because you've mentioned it in the, in our last little discussion there is 
the gender role, with regards to studies, again, there's lots of studies and they, they tend to show things like a larger percentage of autistic people reported their gender as being something other than strictly male or female compared to neurotypical mm-hmm. people. I'd like you to finish up by just kind of shedding some light on the relationship between gender yeah. and autism and your own experiences. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? There's been some really beautiful writings by autistic people around a gender and like how that sense of growing up and being like, I'm not a girl, I'm just me. And maybe it's because the way that femininity is kind of controlled and womanhood is controlled often can come with rules that seem very illogical. And so, you know, and if we can't make sense of why we're being, we have to do something, we don't want to do it. Yeah. Uh, so I think there's that kind of, there's that sense of just basically saying, I experience gender as a social construct and I interpret and I'm less sensitive to social cues in a lot of ways. And so for that, it makes sense to me that the gender that I am comfortable with is not something that I feel has been given space for. And I think that's also like people with ADHD have can have similar experiences. Neurodivergent folks as a whole tend to have a slightly just different relationship around gender. And I think it's also that sense of already knowing what it's like to be predefined, like people's assumptions around what autism is are so narrow they're so narrow. And I think it can feel often that gender can be like that too. My experience of before I I was able to have the space and time to understand myself and, and who I am and to kind of change the gender that I feel inside and that I feel I am. Before that, I did feel it felt claustrophobic. I didn't have room to move. And I just, I feel that that's the experience that from when I've talked to uh, autistic non-binary people who are socialized as boys, it's been similar for them. There's been that sense of like, I don't have room to be myself in this and I need more space and I don't want to be defined when those definitions narrow and like require me to like contort myself into a tiny box when I I feel infinitely greater. And so I think what that's what it has felt like to me. And I think that's been, there's a lot of qualitative pieces that like autistic people have like submitted to and like written reflections on that are really lovely. I'll, I'll have to, maybe I can send them to you because I can't remember the names of them. There's one called like gender cornucopia or something. And it's like a radical feminist perspective on gender and autism. And it's, it's incredible, especially when we are diagnosed as adults and have to rethink a lot of our lives anyway. I think it does kind of lead to just more rethinking of, well, actually, I've always kind of, as an autistic person, I wanted so badly to fit in. I didn't know I was autistic. I just knew I wanted to fit in to have friends. And I was struggling with that a lot. And so I would try to mimic people around me and camouflage and mask and and match the girls I went to school with because, you know, not being great with picking up on like subtext is very difficult when you're in, when you're hanging out with teenage girls. There's a lot of subtext in everything. Um, and so I guess it was that sense of when you're trying so hard to fit in, we are looking for the cues around us and the, and the, the role modeling that we can do to try and be the people that would be accepted. And I think when you get diagnosed and recognize that why you were trying, but why you weren't accepted and how it wasn't because of the person you were, it was because that you were, you know, we process and information and communication just differently. And so it can, there's a disconnect between us and other people uh, who aren't autistic. From my point of view, listening to what you say, you know, if you take it out of that, the gender and put it in just to the broader world, I can mm. completely relate to the claustrophobic yeah. feeling of being an autistic mm. person living in a neurotypical world. You, you feel that same yeah. inner box claustrophobic 
phobia. So I think that's another mm. reason why there's such a, a connection with identifying yeah. you know, between autistic people who were, I guess, a straight. And by the way, I don't get why. Why am I straight? Like, so you're crooked? Oh. I don't understand what that means. No, no, just straight. Straight's just, it's, it's just a, it's just the term that came up for. Um, well, queer has meant crooked and off, like historically. Isn't it bizarre like, though? Know, it's bizarre. But I know. I know. I don't understand what's why we're making it angles and things. It's really weird. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, there's a whole joke like, oh, you know, I'm so bi, I can't even sit straight. You know, like it's. Um, <laughs> I think it's interesting, isn't it? Because that kind of sense of, I think any group of people that have had the representation of what they are be entirely dictated by what people saw them as without actually asking about what's happening inside. And like when they've only been able to see a really narrow representation of that kind of thing, it, it is claustrophobic because it's just kind of like everyone's already decided that these are my options and I have no say in the matter. And I think in some ways when, you know, the neurodiversity paradigm, the idea that neurodiversity like biodiversity is actually essential to any healthy species and ecosystem. And and I think um, that was life-changing. And I think in some ways it kind of helped me recognize just because something has been misunderstood or not has not been seen doesn't mean it hasn't always been there and hasn't been real. Yeah. So it's that, it's that curiosity, isn't it? But I also think that the more people are able to safely explore and express gender and in the way that it means to them, the more people have the freedom to do the same. And I mean, ideally, gender is something that everyone does get to think about and form for themselves the ideas we have of what gender has to be out of the equation. You know what, Ruby, this has been a, an incredible conversation. I'll have to listen to it 20 times to digest it all. <laughs> it's been super in-depth in and, and so insightful. And my goodness, just such a great time. I hope you've enjoyed it too. Yeah, no, it's been really lovely. I really love chatting with you, Ryan. And thank great. you so much for joining us. And Hopefully we can do this again soon. Goodbye, everybody. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. My guest was radio host and member of Aspect's LGBTIQA Plus Advisory Committee, Ruby Mountford. Open, honest and engaging conversations on autism. A different brilliance with Orion Kelly. To learn more, catch up on the episodes or send us a message. Like the Aspect page on Facebook or visit autismspectrum.org.au. Once again, thank you so much for listening to A Different Brilliant. I really do appreciate it. Now, if the episode has resonated with you, well, please share it with your family and friends so we can reach more people. And if you'd like to continue the conversation, you can like the Aspect page on Facebook or you can Send me a message on my website, oriankelly.com.au. A Different Brilliant is an Aspect podcast. Executive producers are Lisa Cassidy, Dr. Tom Tutton and Julie Fenwick. I'm Orion Kelly. Thanks for listening to A Different Brilliant with Orion Kelly, an Aspect podcast on the strengths, interests and aspirations of the autistic community. Our door is open anytime. So like the Aspect page on Facebook or visit autismspectrum.org.au. My aim, make the world a better place for autistic people.